Stu here. I'm very proud to announce that Spoilers, my award-winning climate change comedy show, is returning to the Edinburgh Festival on the 12th, 13th and 14th of August. You can get your tickets at stuartgoldsmith.com on the little orange banner, or you can just go to edfringe.com and search my name. I mean, that's what I'd do. Whether you're a die-hard, north-face-wearing climate dude, or whether you are just a regular person who's a little bit nervous about all the news you're seeing and doesn't really know what to think, there's something there for you. It's really fun and funny, and I think you're going to love it. See you there. Get up to 30% off wedding jewellery at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and this is Gina Yashere. Now you might know Gina from uh, Last Comic Standing in the States, uh, where she's now working a lot uh, in the USA, having floated around the top of the UK circuit for a good few years. Uh, She was also the first and remains the only British act ever to have been on Def Jam Comedy, which is a huge deal. Uh, And she's also a passionate and outspoken live performer. Now, before we go into the interview, I just want to say a little something, hopefully not too much of a disclaimer. Um, There are some allegations coming up in this conversation of joke theft. Uh, Some acts Gina names, including Russell Peters, who's arguably one of the biggest comics in the world, though not super well known in the UK. Um, But Russell's absolutely massive. He's a a Canadian comic who's the sort of guy that can come over here and sell out the the uh, the Apollo for 10 nights. I think it was with no posters or publicity of any sort. I mean, Russell's absolutely he's massive. And you might be aware, Russell recently has himself uh, accused Trevor Noah of joke theft. So that's something to bear in mind as you listen on. I believe he's since retracted that allegation. But look, this show isn't supposed to be the comedy news. I'm just making you aware of a bit of context. Uh, Allegations of joke theft are taken very seriously in the comedy world. And it's not the job of this podcast to go around spreading gossip. But this particular allegation, I think it's worth us hearing about. Plagiary is a big topic. It's a subject that's relevant to the creative process. Uh, And in the case of Russell Peters, I think he's big enough that he's probably not going to lose any sleep over this. Um, So what follows then is Gina's side of the story. And I'll let her say it in her own words. This is Gina Yashere. I had no idea that you were as big in the States as you are. Because I remember you, from, like when I started, maybe yeah. 2004 or 5, yeah. you were a store headliner and you were a jongler's headliner. Right. And you are compl- your career is completely transformed now. God, see, that's the thing. People say that, but to me, it doesn't feel like it. just feels like I'm just gigging. But now I'm getting more people who are coming out to see me, which is great. So I'm doing theatres. And, and then, obviously, in the States, I'm starting to get a little bit of a name for myself. But I wouldn't say I'm big in the States. I'm working. Is that, is that just part of the illusion of being in the UK and going, oh, or, you know... Yeah, I mean, no, it's, it's going well, definitely. I've done a load of TV shows in the States. I've been on Leno eight times. I've been yeah. on Def Jam. I've been on, I just did a show with Shaquille O'Neal. So... You're big in the States. That's it's what going that means. well. I wouldn't yeah, say okay. I'm big. Okay. Russell Brand is big in the States. Okay, okay. okay I'm so. working. I'm doing all right. 
That's okay. what I say. Okay. Until I get to the point where I'm selling stadiums out in the States, that, yeah. that's big in the States to me. Yeah, okay. And are you aiming at that? Is that, is that the plan? Oh, yeah. Is there a Definitely. game plan? Yeah, that's it. That's all I want to do. I don't really care about acting or movies or any of that shit. I just want to tell jokes to as many people as possible for as much money as possible. Okay. Done. That's it. I'm not that okay. ambitious. And when you come back to the UK, I saw in another interview you did somewhere else online that you'd said you regarded it as it wasn't a smash and grab. There was a phrase you used like it's a bank job. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like you come back, to, back yeah, come, come back, back to the UK, rinse the you rinse know. me money, get out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is there is there an element of truth in that? Because I, I, the little I know about working in America. You until you can, and presumably you're a headliner in America. You yeah. get booked to headline. You're yeah. you're the only act on the bill that gets decently paid. Yeah. Now yeah. is that? Have you been through that process in America of being like an opener in the states for very? Oh little? yeah. Oh or did yeah. Last Comic Standing enable you to? No, Last Comic Standing did not do that much for me. To be honest, I, I think people don't respect the show as much yeah, because okay. of some of the previous winners that have been chosen based on a look or a certain. You know what I mean? They okay. want a certain type of person to win this year. Sure. So, like, uh, last comment, I think the show lost a lot of respect. But the last couple of seasons have been really good because they've used real comedians. Not, okay. not, not that they weren't real comedians, but it was based on just public voting for the people they thought were funny. Okay. But, you know, look, com- comedians should never compete against each other. It's all very subjective anyway. But, um, no, it's literally, I, when I got to the States, I was earning no money for the first few years. I was just hitting the clubs and just going, I'm here. And people didn't know who I was, which is great. Yes. So I'd come on and just smash it and they'd go, holy shit, where, yeah, where's your, right. where does shit come from? This is like a bigger yeah. version of that thing yeah. about, like, in the UK, if you can get good outside of London and then yeah. turn up in London, it was like, wow! Okay. Yeah, exactly. And that's basically what I did. So I, I opened for some other big-name comedians for a while. I opened for uh, uh, Chris Rock a couple of times. I've opened for Cat Williams, who's huge. Like, okay. I went on tour with him for a bit. I opened for another guy called Bruce Bruce. I've opened for, I opened for John Pinnett. Okay. So I've opened for quite a lot of comedians while I was out there, just trying to get my name out there. And when I, went, I sort of feel like we've got to do this in two halves. I want to do the, let's do the UK first, the origin okay. half first, and, okay. then, and, then the, and then the second so, half. All right. So... Was that always the plan, or was it just last comic meant, oh, there's a possibility here? Or were, were you, because you're obviously very, very ambitious. So yeah. when you were doing uh, Jonglers in the store, and I looked at one of your your store set that you put online from like 2006 oh, yeah. or seven yeah, or something yeah, like yeah. that. that. I mean, it's great. It's <laughs> such a good set. It's such a, I mean, I was really taken aback, not to, not to say that I didn't expect it to be good, but it's just one of those absolutely compressed set of like punch, 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 punch. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And you look now, I'm telling you that, and you look very proud of this thing, which is really nice. <laughs> oh, I used to, I used to love doing the clubs, man. I, st- I miss it. I miss it still. And that's do why you? when I come back, I still sometimes, I still do the store when I come back, and I still still do the odd jonglers. Because I, I, I know there's a, a, you know, there's a lot of hatred for the jonglers brand or whatever, but they gave me a lot of work yeah. when nobody else was giving me work. And yeah. so I remember that. So if, if they called me up tomorrow and said, come and do a gig for me, I would go and do it. Yeah. Because I'm loyal to people that looked after me when I was not getting anything. Sure. So, yeah, I would still go do jungles. I'll still do Up the Creek. I love Up the Creek. Yeah, man. I'll still do the comedy store, which I think is, I think, still think the comedy store is the best comedy club probably in the world. And that and the comedy cellar in New York. Yeah. That I think they're the two best clubs in the world. Yeah. And prior, prior to that, prior to you being a, a UK headliner, what this is something I, I, I was thinking that I should ask all my guests. Was there a 
Was there a one open mic club that you particularly liked? Like when I was starting, it was upstairs at the Queen's Head in Denman Street, Piccadilly. I just right. felt like I owned it's a tiny little like twenty five <laughs> people because it was. I'd made all my mistakes there. By the right. time I've been going three or four years, I started feeling like ah. Oh, I always do well in this room. Right. Do you have a place like that from when you were an open mic? What, you know what did what? the open mic circuit look like for you? Yeah, it was huge when I started that. There was loads of... Lo- like, what we used to do, what I used to do is get the time out and they had the listings for all the clubs and I'd ring every single Back when one. Time Out had A listings and yes. phone numbers yeah. you could just ring up. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It was before email, before Instagram, before Twitter, before all of that. I used to get the time out every week and just ring every single phone number in it. And if they went, all right, come back in a month, I'll write it down in my diary. I had a little file of facts. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I had a do. file of facts. <laughs> and I'd write it down a month to the day and I'd ring them up. And that's basically, I just pestered people to get over my... Okay. So I didn't have a particular room that I did. I just, just did as many as physically possible. Okay. Yeah. And were those kind of the regular circuit? Were you doing black circuit gigs as well? I was doing time? both. So Because um, I don't know, I don't know anything about the black circuit. I'm sort of peripherally aware of it. And yeah. some of my friends have done it. Some of my Caucasian friends have right, done it. Right, right, like, right. Oh, I didn't even know that was a... Yeah, so when I started out, I, I, um, I always meant to do both. So I started do, that doing a black circuit because that was where I first started doing shows. So I was just like, oh, well, these people look like me. I'll go and do shows. And so that I, I rose up the ranks very quickly on that circuit because okay. if you're, it's a smaller circuit and it's, there's, there's more... At the time, there was a lot more money on okay. the black circuit. That's why a lot of black comedians never really made that jump because they're like, uh, well, why, gonna, why would you? Yeah, why am I going to go and do this comedy club for 20 quid? When I'm getting paid 300 quid to do yeah, this stuff. Yeah, right. So there was a definite, and obviously there was a, a specific audience that came, you know, when you go watch comedy on TV and you, you went to uh, mainstream comedy clubs, you never really heard people talking about our experiences. Yeah, Black sure. Africans, Caribbeans living in England and, and our parents coming from a different place. We weren't hearing that kind of stuff. Mm. The kind of stuff we were hearing, it, we still kind of related to it because we're born and raised in England, but the black circuit, Filled that void. Okay. So who were the who were the kind of the heroes when you started out? Who were the people that like the British people that you were inspired by? Well, see, I was never really inspired by other comedians. <laughs> I never <laughs> that's, started. That's I was never I was never interested in comedy before I started doing it. I had no idea about okay. it. I never watched it. Like, you know, some comedians have got an encyclopedic knowledge of comedy. Yeah. And I'm gonna admit this to you right now, and I've only admitted it once before in another interview, but I've never watched an entire Richard Pryor set really never because i'll start watching it and i know and i'm going i know i'm in the presence of genius here but it's been bastardized and plagiarized by some other many other comedians since but when i'm watching him i feel like i've seen it all before even though i haven't at at what point then is the question did the kind of fairly steely ambition that you've just described (laughs) there of like i don't want anyone to look at me and think they think i'm like anyone else at what point did that was that always in you as a always as a teenager? Yeah, I've always been very competitive. I've always uh, been a type of person I throw myself at stuff. I, if I find an interest, I'm, I've got quite an addictive personality. Yeah. So if I like something, I go for it. I go for it hard. And then if it don't work out, I'll go, all right, that was rubbish, next. And then I'll find the next thing. And that's how I've always been. So even I worked as an engineer. I was a lift engineer. That's what yeah. I did. I built and repaired lifts for a living. And so I was like, I want to be the best at this. And so I went for that. And then... I found comedy. I went, oh, I like this a bit better. Fuck the list. I'm going to go and do this for a bit and see how that goes. And just threw everything at it. Um, you asked earlier about, was it always my plan to live in America? Since I was six. Really? Uh, as a kid, we used to get these bazooka gums 
and they had cartoons on them. And at the at the back, they had all these toys that you could buy. Except these toys were all American toys. So from childhood, I was like, they've got better toys than us in America. They've got better everything. They've got. I want to live there. So it's been a dream of mine since yeah. I was like six. I used to say to my mum, "Why did you come here?" Why didn't you go to America? You could have gone anywhere in the world. Like, you had the choice and you came yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay. And so I was saying that to my mum from childhood. And so even when I worked as an engineer, I worked for Otis, which is an American company, because my plan was to transfer to America at some is point. Is that right? Yeah. No way. Yeah. So then when you became, when you were uh, gigging, when you got up to the, I mean, how long did it take you to get up to kind of the store, to doing 20s at the store? Uh, I was doing 20s. I was doing an hour show, my own hour show on the black circuit yeah. within a year. No way. Yeah, okay. I got I got lucky in that uh, within sort of six months of starting comedy, I came second at the Hackney Empire New Act of the Year, okay. which at Who the time... Who won that year? Who won? Uh, Noel, Noel Britton. Oh, like, wow. Okay. Like no, no. Yeah, 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 he's been on. Yeah, 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 I saw him and I was like, oh, he's going to win. But I'm going to try and get the second spot. Okay. And I got it. <laughs> and at the time, that was very prestigious. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't know how prestigious it is now, but back then... It's got a different name and a different kind of branding to yeah, stuff now. Yeah. But I think there's, yes, yeah, there's definitely some good Back then, it was it. huge. Like, the yeah. final uh, at the Empire was sold out. It always sold out every year. And a lot of TV scouts came to that. So from that, I got onto a TV show called The Big Big Talent Show, mm. which is hosted by Jonathan Ross. Omar Jalili did it. Okay. Paul Zerdin did it. Okay. Like... What, what year are we talking? When this was like 90... I say 96? Okay. I think it was like 96. Okay. It was very much early in my career. So I started sort of mid to end of 95. And so, yeah, 96. Okay. So, yeah, I, was, I think I was the only stand-up comic who actually got through to the final of that show. No way. Yeah. So you, but you had your own hour that you were doing on the black circuit right, at, the, so, at the same time. No, so about that time. So I did that. That was within six months. About two months after that, I got another TV show called Blouse and Skirt, which was a yeah. uh, TV show on BBC in the middle of the night that was aimed towards an ethnic audience. And I mean, they treated us like shit. They put us on a stupid o'clock. But uh, I went there as just a guest, and they loved me, and they kept me on. It was like a panel-type thing. It was four comedians sitting on stools discussing current events. It's not that far off from where Mott the Week and that is. Sure, it's, sure. it's not that far off. And uh, so I did that, and um, basically, I was on it every week. Okay. And so, and black people watched that. So that made me a star instantly on the black circuit. So I was able to, I turned up at shows and people were coming to see me. So I was like, oh. And then I started doing my, my, my I remember my, within an hour, uh, my, the first year I did my first hour set. It was a Batsy Arts Centre. It was a little room. It was a 50-seater room. And 50 people, I sold it out. And I was like, oh, my God. 50 people oh my God. paid money yeah, right. to come and hear me do my jokes for an hour. And I've been going 11 months. You know Jesus, I mean? there. Are, I mean, there are some guests that come yeah. on the show. I can imagine the the listeners of this show going, "Oh, that's great! I'm going to do that." And there are others I could just imagine listeners going, "Oh, Christ, stuff this!" and just driving a car <laughs> off the road. What's the point? That, within eleven months. Eleven months, yeah. So, what do you put that down to? What quality is it that you've got that made that happen so fast? Um, I worked my ass off. Uh, I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. I was very confident, you know, I was confident to the point where comedians at the time, especially on the black scene, they didn't like me very much. They thought I was cocky. I wasn't cocky. I was, I've always had a very outgoing and confident personality. And once I'm doing something and I, and I think I could be good at it, I'm, I'm throwing everything at it. Yeah. So a lot of comedians at the time were a little bit, they were threatened by it. 
you know. Yes. Yeah. So I think it was, but it was just it was just a work ethic. I kept working, I kept writing, and then I did this show, this blouse and skirt show. It was funny because I didn't have that much material, but I, I basically. I rinsed out all of my material on that show <laughs> because I didn't know how to just talk and add the funny. Okay. I basically crowbar all my jokes in. So then it made me have to write loads more because I'd used all the jokes on the TV show. So <laughs> okay. I was like, oh God, I got to write another set. And when I first, obviously I didn't know that much about stand-up when I first started doing it. So I thought that every time I performed, I had to write a new set. Okay, yes, so, I've heard a couple of people have thought that. And it, I think that creates amazingly hard-working comics because yeah. that, that first experience of learning that. Exactly. So I had loads and loads and loads of jokes because I was constantly writing new stuff because I was like, oh, I've, I've done another show and seven, some of those people might be the same people. I can't have the same... And, uh, yeah, so that's... So let, let's just digress for a minute and talk about the writing. When you were... Because I, I really like getting into the kind of minutiae of how people write stuff. What, right. what was your first experience of sitting and... Like, after you'd done that, you just improvised for 10 minutes and... Yeah. Not just got away with it, but spanked yeah. it. Right. What was the first time you put pen to paper, and what what kind of ideas were you? Well, what I did uh, when when I did the ten minutes thing, when I just got us through to the final, I had stuff written because I had the sketch, the play, and the play was based on a, it was basically the characters in my family life. So I basically just took elements of the play, okay, and just did it, and then just ad lib that, and okay. people, and at the time. Yeah, I don't think it was very sophisticated. If I look back at that, I'll go, oh, my God, that was a load of shit. But the characters, the people related to the characters, they found the characters funny. I don't think my writing technique was particularly good at that point, but there was definitely a nugget of something there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, what, so when did it start to turn... When did you start writing... Like, do you remember the first bit that you wrote and went like... Oh, I've written some proper stand-up. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was your first? What was your oh first? Oh my bit? god, that, a joke that was actually stolen by Russell Peters. Funny, Leela. <laughs> Go on. Uh, it was a joke that I used to, I used to talk about how because when you do the, the mainstream circuit, white uh, comedians couldn't tell the difference between like me and somebody like Curtis Walker, for instance. <laughs> whereas, whereas, not not in looks, yeah, sure. it's just, just okay. that Curtis Walker is from a Jamaican background. My family's African. Okay, and on the black scene. When I started out, the majority of the comedians were from a Caribbean background. Yeah. And a lot of their jokes poked fun at Africans. There, there was a divide between Africans okay. and Caribbeans. So a lot of their jokes poked fun at Africans, the stereotypes, the traffic wardens, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'd be sitting in the crowd and I'd go, there's no one coming at it from my perspective. It's all these Jamaicans and that taking a piss out of us. Where's the Africans coming back? So when I did the black scene, when I came out of the black scene, that was my perspective. I'm like, yeah, you take the piss out of me. Well, here's what I got to say about Jamaicans and Bayesians. And, and I'd have jokes okay. about. And so I was coming from from that angle. Okay, okay. And what was the, what was the like? If that was the the kind of the area that you're dealing in, what was your? Do you remember like right, the first? So, so joke? the first joke was, because I was just explaining the background. Yeah, so, totally, yeah. so the first joke was, um, I talked about how my Jamaican friends at school, I didn't understand the Jamaican slang, and that for, uh, neither did my mum, and that for a long time, uh, me and my mum both thought Panani was a tropical fruit. <laughs> okay. And then I did this whole routine about my mum trying to go to the market and go, I want Panani, my daughter needs Punani, and Punani is obviously Jamaican yeah, sure. word for pussy, basically. So that was the, one of the first jokes I ever okay, wrote. Okay, and uh, yeah, which is one of the also one of the jokes that made Russell Peters famous because he stole that shit. No really. way! Oh, do you, I mean, do you know like from like, was he at a gig? Oh, like, he admitted it. He admitted it. Oh to yeah, you I confronted him. How did you? Oh, this is fascinating. I'd love to know. How do you go up to someone and go? 
Listen, well, I can imagine already how you do it. I don't right, think I'd be to, able to. He used to come over to England before he was hugely famous. He okay. used to come over to England a lot and do gigs. We used to do gigs together. Okay. So he'd come over, do shows here and go back to Canada. And what I did realise, he was taking my jokes, and probably other people's, not just mine, and going back to Canada and performing them. How he got found out was a friend of mine, who, uh, Veronica McKenzie, who was also a comedian at the time. Okay. She doesn't do it anymore. She writes for TV now, whatever. Um... She went to Canada on holiday. And bear in mind, we all used to hang out together. So she goes, she calls up Russell and goes, I'm going to come and hang out with you. And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he took her to a gig and then he must have thought, oh, fuck. And he went up to her before the show and went, I'm going to be doing some stuff that's very similar to Gina's. And then proceeded to go on stage <laughs> and do my material. Oh, my God. So obviously she comes back and tells me. I see him about a year later and I go, Russell, what the fuck? You're doing... This is a podcast, I'm allowed to swear, You're right? you're doing it. I'm like, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, Russell, what the fuck? Why are you doing my shit? Oh, I'm sorry, it was an accident. It was an accident. It was such a good joke. And there was a couple of other jokes on mine he did, but that was okay. the yeah. And he was like, oh, you know, it was a mistake, sorry. And I'm like, all right, fine. We'll let it go. But then, years later, I'm doing my stuff on TV, and someone emails my website going, why are you stealing Russell Peters' material? Oh, my God. So I'm like, he's obviously still doing my stuff. And then I go to Montreal Comedy Festival. By that time, he's a superstar. Go to Montreal Comedy Festival. Uh, I, I check into the hotel, switch on the TV. His special comes on. And the first joke that comes out of his mouth is one of mine. And funny enough, I see him in the bar the next day. And I'm like, what the f- Russell, you promised me you are going to stop doing my t- material. Why? I just watched you on TV doing my shit. Oh, no, no, no. What it is? I, no, that, that special's from six years ago. I'm like, yeah, but that was at least five years after you told me you were going to stop doing my stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he promised to pay me, but he never did. No I way. Think, I think he got mad because I told other people. Yeah, I was going to say, are yeah. you going to like email me later on today and say, you've got to take this bit out of the podcast, okay. like, you're fine no. with that? No. So what's your relationship with him like now? Is it, are you, I mean, you're sort of smiling as you're saying it. You, you feel like you've dealt with this, uh, or are you still mad at him? It still irritates me because I'm like, Jesus, this, you know, I'm not getting credit. Yeah. You know, this guy's making millions. I mean, it's not just my material. I mean, you should start putting joke writer for Russell Peters in your bio. Okay? I know, I <laughs> yeah, but then, no, because he's not that respected as a comedian either. <laughs> Okay. Oh my god. I mean, I've dealt with it. I can't. I can't keep. I can't hark on about it. I'm just. I'm letting it be known. Sure. That's all you can do, I'm isn't it? it be because known. once it's out there, that yeah, absolutely. You've got no other recourse, have you? And, and especially when he is like huge, he's like a mega, famous. mega, mega star. Yeah. So you know, I saw him last year at Montreal, and he's very awkward around me. <laughs> he's like, oh, what's happening, Gina? But I'm looking at him like he's very awkward around me. Well, at least there's that. Yeah. At least you get that. He's awkward because oh he knows. God. You know, he knows it. Look, he admitted it. He promised to pay me and then didn't. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, you said you're going to pay me. What's up with that? But I just think it's because he was obviously trying to pay me hush money to shut my mouth about yeah, it. Yeah, sure. And um, that's no longer. Uh... And that's no, so he's not. He's, he's thinking, well, she's told everybody now, so there's no need for me to pay her. I oh, think that's. His, I think that's his mentality. Yeah. Well, whatever. So more from Gina in a moment. Uh, first, I just want to quickly say thank you to everyone that came along to the first Comedians Comedian Live at the Soho Theatre with Des Bishop. Uh, it was an excellent conversation, which I'm very pleased to bring you next week. Of course, that is no substitute for being there, seeing it in person uh, and smelling us both. <laughs> um, the next live Soho show is with the completely brilliant Nina Conti, uh, comedian, ventriloquist, uh, variety superstar and documentarian. Uh, Nina is absolutely great. as She is just one of those people who... I mean, she was brilliant when I started 10 or 11 years ago, and she has just, like, the graph of how good she is has just gone bang, just exponentially. She's great. 
Tickets are available now by clicking on the flashing banner at comedianscomedian.com. And remember, that'll take you to the Soho Theatre website. Remember to enter the word FAF when they give you a little chance to enter your voucher code. Uh, F-A-F-F. I might well have to be in capital letters. Um, you get a special ComCom discount just for you. That one is on the 5th of May. The first Tuesdays in June and July also have live ComCom shows happening. I'm not releasing those names just yet. But, uh, you know, I think people are already buying tickets for them. Uh, they, they certainly did after the Dez show. I'm sure more people will after the Nina show. If you want to be in with a chance, just trust me that you're going to love them and buy your tickets now with that code FAF. The Secret Welsh Festival that we do never, that we never name is now confirmed um, for Mark Watson to be my guest in the Vortex venue at half five on the Sunday. Uh, and I'm also doing my own show at... I should know this. Let's say seven o'clock. It might be eight o'clock. Uh, I'm doing my own show, uh, my work in progress show, which I am very excited about. Um, I say this every year. That's a good thing. You've got to see, you, you can't go, oh, this year's show. I'm not so excited about it. But I, I really, I, I've had a bit of a sea change in what I do. And I'm very, very excited about it. So do come along and see that as well. Um, I've told the Facebook group already that it's Mark Watson. I'm not going to make it publicly known to non-listeners of this podcast um, until next week. So jump on it now. Grab your tickets by going to the website, by Googling up the name of the website if you know the name of the secret festival that we never name. Thank you for your donations once again, comedianscomedian.com or patreon.com forward slash comcompod. Uh, you can decide your own, uh, certainly, well, Patreon does its own thing. If you know about that, you'll know about that. Um, but for the rest of us mortals, um, it's uh, you can decide how much you pay via PayPal and pay whatever you like. I don't mind. If you can't pay, that's completely fine. Uh, you are just as welcome to this podcast as anyone. But if you would like to make a donation, then that money only ever goes towards supporting the show, helping me make it bigger and better and go to more places and take myself to more places in an attempt to talk to more diverse and interesting people. We've got some real curveballs coming up. I'm not going to tell you too much right now, but uh, we've had some, uh, I've got a lot of uh, interviews booked in the diary and some of them are with unusual variations on the theme of comedy. I think you're really going to enjoy some of them. So uh, that's that for now. So thank you. Thank you for your for all of your donations. They, they are very much appreciated. Um, so comedianscomedian.com to do them. And now it's back to Gina. Now, I think I've made the right decisions here in, in editing or not editing. Uh, I hope so. There's another very big issue coming up about the inherent uh, embedded racism of the UK TV industry. Uh, to be fair to Gina, I don't think she calls it racism, but I will I'll let her explain. Um, she has got some very eye-opening opinions on and very believable opinions, I think, about how our TV culture works. Again, she's very outspoken and I'm just going to let her tell it like she sees it. Let's get back to Gina Yashere. So listen, when you when you were describing that particular joke, the Punani tropical fruit joke, yeah. something you said I think is very typical of the way you work. If that was an early joke, there's something um, that I've heard your latest uh, special, the Laughing to America one, oh, right. and there's there's something that, that I think you're particularly good at, which is your or a particular trope of yours is that you do the joke and then you get loads and loads and loads out of the act out. Like right. loads more laughs than just punchline, explain punchline. Like yeah. Most people's act outs are like, it's the laugh and then it's the laugh again. Yeah. You really go right into it. Is that, I mean, is that kind of a throwback from you doing sketches in the early days or is this some, is uh, this part of your persona off stage as yeah, well? Yeah, I just think it is because when I hang out with my mates, and I, you know, I've always been the funny one amongst my mates. That was, that was what I do. I take the piss out of people and if people are laughing I want that laugh to continue so I'll keep ringing it and ringing it and ringing yes. it until it's dead yeah. <laughs> and that was part of it that act out was all part of it you know and people 
you know, and there's a lot of comedy snobbery where people go, oh, you know, these physical comedians. I don't think there's anything wrong in adding physicality to your yeah. stand-up. As long as the material's there, I write, a, I write a damn good joke. I've got jokes that look fantastic on paper. Yeah. But what's wrong with having it look be fantastic on paper and be able to wring more laughter yeah, out of it? absolutely. By adding physicality to it. I don't see anything wrong with that. There's a bit of snobbery around that because some comedians just stand there and, you know, I just let the words... And I'm like, that's great, good for you, but... I want to use up as much time as possible and get as much laughter as I can out of a single joke. That's what I'm going to do. So when you let's let's go back, let's go back to the writing. Then you're sitting and writing. Do you have do you do you still write in the same way now as you did back then? Because no. you, I'm amazed to hear your stuff is so natural. It looks like you're one of those people that just writes on stage. Do you I mean, that's you just how it have is. an idea and there it is. That's how it is now. So so if I if I'm someone that's currently writing in a notebook and I want to get to there, how do I get to there? Yeah, it took a good few years. Like, if you saw me in the first six, seven years... <laughs> I thought you were going to say, it took two weeks. I've always been fast. No, no, no. <laughs> no it, took, it took years. Like, the first five, six years of doing comedy, I've still got all my notebooks. I had my notebooks where I wrote my jokes, and then every single set, every single set, I'd write a list of the jokes in the order that I'm going to do them. Okay. Like, it was, it was regimented. And every single gig I did... There's the list of jokes. And then I'd come off stage and I'd tick them off one by one and go, fuck, I missed out that one. Damn. And I'd tick it out. Okay. And then I'd grade every show. Okay. You so, grade each joke in each show? No, nope, every, each, every okay. set. Like some, if a joke really killed, I'd put an asterisk next to it. Yeah. I'd go, right, that's a good one. That's a killer set. And then I'd look at it and I'd go, right, well, maybe that one could go at the end because that's got an asterisk, which means it's got the biggest laugh. And it was very, very technical because I'm, I'm an sure. engineer. Right? Yeah, so right. Very, okay, yeah, My yeah, brain, yeah. my thought pattern was very technical and that's how I did it. I've still got all my notebooks from the first few years and I go, and it's great because I can look back and go, oh my God, I remember when I wrote that joke. And I can also go back and go, oh my God, I've been doing that joke for 10 years. It's got yeah. to go. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so that's what I did. I was very technical in the first sort of five, six years. And then even with the hour sets, it was all listed. I, like, duh, 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 duh. Okay. And so there's there's almost like an element of like, um, it's a bit, I, I, don't, I hate to use the term, but it's a bit like a magician. Do you know? Because what you're doing is, it's rigorously technical behind the scenes. Yeah. But you're all kind of like soupy and yeah. kind of tactile, you know, yeah. your relationship with the audience is all kind of concealing all of that. But that's how it was at the beginning. Okay. But then as... I got more and more experienced and I started ad living more. I didn't have to rely because before I used to have to do the, if the set was written a certain way, that's the order it had to go. If okay. it didn't go that order, a joke got left out and that was it. And then as I became more fluid and more relaxed on stage and more confident in my ability, I could afford to, I could swap things around and think, you know, go, oh, he just mentioned that in the crowd. He just heckled with something. I've got a joke that... that yeah. we were, and then I'll pull, you know, so it was like I had a Rolodex in my head. Yeah, sure. Oh, did you just mention sharks? Hold on. I've got a bit about sharks. And so it became like that. It became a lot more fluid. So after about eight years, I stopped writing the lists. Okay. So I don't okay. do the lists anymore. So now when I'm going on stage, even on my tours, mm-hmm. like I'll write new jokes and go, okay, there's some ideas of jokes, but it's not very... I'll just have a nugget of an idea mm. and then just do it. So, so it, with the the process originally in that first eight years, you'd have a nugget of an idea. How much would you be like sitting down and writing at a desk during the day before then going on stage that night? Uh, uh, not not on a desk in the day. I've never been that disciplined, but I did sit and write. So okay. I'd go, I'll go write jokes today, and I'll sit down and I have my notebook and I'll scribble and scribble and scribble 
for hours. So let's look at let's look at the scribble. How are yeah. you pulling an idea apart? Are you one of those people that would go, okay, let's look at the who, when, what, where, why of this idea? Are you doing spider diagrams? What what what's the kind of the, the right zero in there? What was that? Do you remember? Oh God. <laughs> I feel like I'm doing hypnotherapy. I'd have the idea, I'd go, right, this happened. What makes this funny? Why is it funny? Is there somebody else that was involved in it that made it funny? Is there something I can add in there, physical action that can... Because I'd actually sometimes write on my jokes. Act out. I'd actually write. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Stick a physical bit in there and act out that certain part of the joke. But it wasn't super technical. That's basically what it was. It was just like, all right, here's the setup. I think this is the punchline. And in the middle somewhere, I'm going to embellish it. It's just about, okay. for me, it's all about embellishing. Okay. And did it, did it always need to be true or did that not matter at all? If there's something that's uh, funny, could you just add anything to it if it made it funny? Or would you try and be faithful to what was... Yeah, I, try, I will exaggerate. Yeah. I'll definitely exaggerate and embellish. But I like to, yeah, like when you come to my shows, everything is based on it's all true. Okay. Exaggerated, but true. Yeah, okay. so I try and stick to that. I wouldn't stick to the facts. I could add stuff to it and exaggerate sure. that what's happened. But yeah, there is a nugget of truth to it. And did you, when you kind of remember those writing experiences now, is it like a pleasurable memory? Did you ever feel like it was, did you get blocked? Did you go, oh, fucking, I can't do this? Or was it always, like, to look to look at you now as like someone who, well, that all worked and you're in a really good place now. Yeah. Um, is it something that you... Because I, I have definitely been through phases of going, oh, I'm, I'm really on it today. And I've yeah. been through phases of going, just hopelessly staring at a piece of paper. I can't get nothing out of it. Oh, yeah. So the, back then, because I was so new and I had so much to talk about, it just flowed and flowed and flowed. It just kept coming. As years went by and you, it becomes a job and you're gigging all the time. I've and, done everything about yeah. my mum. I've done everything yeah, about my family. It just starts to, you know, you start to... Yeah, you kind of lose that spark of excitement you know and yeah so I went through a stage where I was like I, I didn't feel like I was writing that much yeah and did you have did you have any strategies to get you out of that did you were you able to no if something happened Go then on. I'd be like yeah I mean some terrible stuff happened to me but I'd be like at the back of my mind I'm going this is horrible but this is material this is awesome and that's basically I was basically waiting for stuff to happen in my life. So when things were, were happening, I was like, oh, that's great, that's great. This is giving give me more experiences for stuff. But, and that's how I write. That is one of the, I think that's one of the magical qualities of stand-up is to be able to have something terrible happen and be able... Because not most people, when terrible shit happens, they just have to suffer the terrible stuff. Mm-hmm. But I guess as a comic, you get to have one eye on it. Yeah. Trying yeah. to find the positives. Yep. Like, I've, been, I've had health issues. I've been diagnosed with lupus. i got... Sleep apnea and a cancer scare and all kinds of things. And at the back of my mind, I'm thinking, this is horrible, but if I don't die, this is going to be some funny shit. (laughs) Were you at a stage of going, I'm headlining all the clubs, I've I've got to remember this America plan now, you know, be bubblegum cards as a kid? Yeah, what happened? I was headlining all these clubs, it was going really well. And then I was doing lots of other stuff. I was starting to get lots of bits and pieces on TV. And I think my agent at the time was a bit lazy. He never really pushed to get me out of the clubs onto a bigger stage. I was starting to sell theatres and do little things like that. Like I remember this is what the moment it turned for me when I was like, yeah. I, I hosted the MOBO Awards, which is a huge... And I hosted it two years in a row. Mm-hmm. So I... And so one night I'm being driven around 
in a Maybach with my own chauffeur, makeup artist, all of that stuff, hobnobbing with Rihanna and people like that backstage, hosting this huge show. And the next night, I was at Jonglers Watford. And Ian Stone came up to me. That's what that, this was a turning point. Ian Stone came up to me and went, Gina, don't take this the wrong way, but what the fuck are you doing here? Yeah, right. And I remember thinking, you're right, Ian. What? I was just on TV for a billion people last night. And I'm here doing jugglers. What? This is, you're right. And it made me, and I fired, fired my agent. And basically got another agent and started saying, right, I need to I need to transcend the clubs and start doing my own theatre shows. And that's and then I at that same time I just started, I did Lenny Henry show and mm. that took my old so as before when I was doing my own shows, it was mainly a black audience. Ninety yes, percent okay. black because of the, the TV show, the Blouse and Skirt. And then I did Lenny Henry and that took me to a mainstream audience. And yes. then I do a theatre and suddenly it's 50%, white, right? 50% black, yes. so I'm, I'm getting a mix And of you're people. new to them, because if they've just seen you from the TV, they don't know about all the hard yards you've been doing. Exactly, getting really so they're good. coming yeah, to see my yeah. stand-up, and they're blown away. And, and that's continued to this day, that my audience, you come to any of my shows, you'll see black, white, gay, straight, young, old. I've had a 14-year-old sneak into my show, right up to an 87-year-old, and they've all had a blast. So my audience is super mixed, and that's because of all the different TV shows I've done. Okay. Okay, so then, so the move to America, yeah, happened. Like, was was there a point after after that? You know, find the agent, you get the new agent, you start touring. Is that that was when you started touring, right? Yeah, that's when my tours got bigger. I'd always okay. been doing little tours, but then after that, my tours got bigger. So you're you're touring in the UK, mm-hmm. and then the American the opportunity comes along with Last Comic. That was that was the foot in the door, was it? Or had you yeah. been there? Had you yeah, in America? I mean, I'd been to the states before. Like, as I said, I'd always wanted to live in America. So as soon as I started doing comedy, I thought, I could still do this in America. And I'd made friends with uh, American comedians that had come over to England to do shows. So I'd gone over there and done a few little exploratory gigs in New York and stuff uh, the years before. So, But then Last Comic Standing, this is how Last Comic came about for me. It didn't come about the way it did for everybody else. I was doing Montreal Comedy Show. I was in Montreal Comedy Festival and I was on a show with this comedian called Roz G. And they introduced her and they went, ladies and gentlemen, from Last Comic Standard, it's Roz G. So I was like, what's this Last Comic Standard? And I Googled it. And at the time, it was just an American show. Okay. This is before they decided to come out. It was just an American show and I Googled this show. So I called up my agent and I was like, listen, there's this TV show in America called Last Comic Standing. I want to be the first British comedian to do this show. Okay. So start looking into it for me. So as she started looking into it, little did I know that they'd they already decided. Looking, yes, they'd okay. already started looking for foreign comedians, and they they'd already they'd already started asking questions about me already. And when I auditioned for it, I was in Australia when I auditioned for it because I said I'm not doing that lining up on the street with the plebs thing. I'm not mm-hmm. doing that. And they're like, no, no, we'll make an appointment. You come. And I happened to be on tour in Sydney when they came to Sydney and I auditioned there. So for the first six months of my time in America, people thought I was Australian. I see, okay, okay. Because I'd auditioned, I see. But that was the opportunity. Uh, sure. Basically, I got on to Last Comic, got to the, 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 the finals or semi-finals. The, the last 10, is it? The, yeah. yeah, so okay. I got to Los Angeles semi-finals and to, to go to Los Angeles just to do the semi-finals, they get you a visa. Yes, okay. Right. The so, last beyond the show. Yeah. Okay. So I was like, oh, I said, like, this is a... This is a two-year visa. And they're like, yeah. I was like, does that mean I can live and work in America 
for two years. And they're like, yep. I, I came back from the semifinals. I put my house on the market the next day. Okay. And I sold and gave away everything I owned. And this is from a position of, one would imagine, relative comfort in the UK. You're known yep. to the circuit. You're gigging yep. and you're enjoying all of that. Yeah, I'm making the good money. Just... I've got a nice house. I've got a nice life. I mean, pr- presumably, part of you is thinking, if it doesn't work out, two years later, the, the circuit's still going to remember you. You can come back. Well, exactly. I, at that point, I'd already built up an audience of people coming out to see me. Yeah. So I'm like... I could always come back and play the clubs. Mm-hmm. I've got an audience of people who come out and see me, so I, I will right. still come back to England and right. do tours. So it's not a burn-everything risk, yeah. it's a calculated risk. Exactly. Why not? Why not do it? So I thought, the opportunity's come. All I'm going to be... The world is a much smaller place now because it was MySpace at the time, not Facebook. Yes. I was like, I've got MySpace, I've got my website, so people, I could still... <laughs> I'm selling my house and getting MySpace yeah. instead. Yeah. And <laughs> that's, that's basically what I did. I sold the house and... So, went, so what was your experience of Last Comic? Obviously, now you can look back on it and go, it was corrupt in those days. It was or, corrupt, know. it was rubbish. Uh, I, mean, I, should, I should say, I did a similar kind of a British kind of version of it that was oh, right. called Show Me the Funny. Oh, so right. Rudy Liquid was oh, on it. Oh, yes. Tiffany, I think Patrick yes. Warren won it. And, um, and so I've been through that experience of going, oh, these producers are not on my side. It's a very weird thing, right? Yes. Yeah, I wasn't even meant to get through to the finals. They already, you were like meant to get through, so they yeah, decided. They would already picked the people that they wanted. Okay. But lucky I had a producer who was fighting my corner, and I on the night of the semi-finals, I went on first out of thirty odd comedians, and I destroyed it. Okay. So the producers in the background going, "You can't not put her through. She's just gone on first and destroyed it." So that's why I got through. But I didn't understand the game. Okay. I'd never seen the show. Sure. And so. You know, you thought you were supposed to be voting for the person that you find least funny, whatever. And there was a lot of okay. strategic voting going on. So basically, I voted so by... voting on the part of the, the contestants. You had to vote for each other. Or... Yeah, basically, okay. you, you went in and you went, I nominate blah, 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 because I think I I'm funnier than blah, blah, blah. And there was one comedian who kind of cheated his way onto the, into the final in that he got a load of people to come down and just laugh and clap okay. really loud and give them a standing ovation. For okay, 1980s so Robert De Niro impression. <laughs> and so all the other comedians were like, oh, that dude, that dude, he cheated his way on here. So I was like, yeah, he kind of did. All right, I'm going to vote for him. And I'm assuming that all the other comedians are going to vote for him as well. Vote him off, you mean? Yeah. Yes, I understand. But that's not what happened. They started strategically voting. So I stuck to what I said I was going to do. And oh I was God. the only one that did. And all the other comedians were like, yeah, that guy had voted differently. They'd all voted strategically to okay. keep themselves in. Okay. So I basically voted myself off the show. Oh, man. <laughs> by, not knowing, by not understanding that people yeah, okay. are dishonest. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, it's like that whole kind of Big Brother thing of like yeah. what, what they want is not your actual feelings. What yeah. they want is good TV. Yeah, so I, I didn't know that. So I voted myself off the show. But it was fine. I had the two-year visa. Mm-hmm. I stayed in America. I just carried on working the clubs. I was in Los Angeles at that point, And I just... just hit the road, just work in the clubs and opening for anybody that'd be opening for them and just just trying to get my name out And there. presumably it did make good TV though because then it got enough, you got enough, you got known enough from it that you could, presumably when you were then, you know, using that two-year work visa, you weren't ringing up and going, hello, I'm, I'm no one you've ever heard of from England. You were able to say, I'm Jeannie Ashray from Last Comedy. True, did, but... Did that help or...? Not really because I think it's only when you get to the top five. Yes, is when it really starts to make a difference. Otherwise, you're sort of saying, I'm that one that got voted off. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the right. top five, and then the top five got to go on the tour, the last yes. comic standing tour. And that was, Matt Kershaw was one of them, was he? Did he he wasn't the in five? the top okay. five, 
But he got to go on a few of the tours. Mm. He, he was top six or something. Okay. But he got to go on a couple of dates because if someone couldn't make the, the tour, they called the next one. In. Okay. So, but I never got to go on the tour, which really annoyed because it was nice money, and I get to I would have got to play American yes. audience and maybe collect some more fans on the. So I missed that out by being naive. Mm. <laughs> Do you regret that now? Do you wish you'd played the game more? Are you happy oh, you definitely. stuck to you really? Because oh, I thought you were going to say no. I did the right thing. I did it right. No, you'd rather oh, no. have played it. If I don't, if I'd watched the show before. Obviously, they were, they were basically Americans. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. So they had seen the show, so they knew about the, the in, you know, and I didn't. So I, I, I wish I'd known, because then I would have been a lot more strategic and I would have got on the tour and it would have been, it would have not been as hard work as it was to yeah. get my name out there in America had I got to the top five of Last Comic. So it was a lot harder work. Right? You know, people were like, oh, yeah, 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 you were on last night, but you didn't get to the top five, did you? Mm. And, you know, getting to the top five meant that you headline clubs at a higher fee. Because, yeah, in America, the headlining scene is different from here. Yes, as I understand it, you're the headliner because you can pull the crowd. Exactly. So anyone else on the bill, the, the, the host, which I think is sort of an opener, yeah. and then the middle act, they get paid. They get nothing, yeah. But I think there's different levels of headlining. Of course. You know, like... Uh, that one of the guys I opened for, Bruce Bruce, he could say, right, I'm doing five nights th- over this weekend at your club, I want 30 grand. Mm-hmm. And they'll pay it. Well, if someone's like me coming in and headlining the same club, they'll go, we'll pay you three grand mm-hmm. for the week. And for that three grand, you're doing a show on Wednesday, a, sh- a show on Thursday, three shows on Friday, three shows on Saturday, two shows, they'll ring you dry. Local radio. Um, <laughs> do you do those as well, local radio? I where you've got, to like, you're yeah, five what, in the morning. I've, to, I've done very little of it just yeah. in like New Zealand and stuff, but yeah. I heard that's like murder oh, about being in the just, States. It's just awful. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that there's different levels of headlining. If you've got to the top five of last comic standing, you'll be able to demand six to eight grand for a weekend. And, and the, gigs, the gigs are the same, the same people. The same more people, people, same there. club. You get to harvest more of the fans, yeah. but you just go straight in the door at a higher rate. Yeah, you get more money. And the clubs will book you, because those clubs out there won't even book you if they don't think you can sell tickets. They're totally economic. Yeah, so I'd get yeah. out there and they go, yeah, you know, you're, we know you're funny, but... Doesn't matter. You're not going to sell Does out that, our club, so with, we're not booking you. With that in mind, do you look back at the way the UK system works? Like, which do you kind of... I, I can sort of see that makes sense, economically speaking. No, I think Could you UK, see that working over here or what? No, the UK system's way better. The UK system's better. This is why. Because the, the comedy club system in the UK, as it was, I mean, it's starting to change a little bit for the worse, and I'm very upset about that, but... As it was, you had the comedy clubs for comedians. People go to the comedy club. It's the, it's, the onus is on the comedy club to say, we're a good and reputable club, and if you come to, through our doors, you're going to have a good night. That is the onus of the comedy club. And then they book whatever comedians they want. Everybody gets the same money. And that's how it should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's the onus of the comedy clubs. If you get to a point where people are wanting to pay to see you, 
Then you transcend the comedy clubs. Then you start doing art centres and theatres and doing your own thing. But then you leave the comedy clubs for those comedians that might not have had the same exposure as you, but doesn't mean they're any less funny. But they're just as good as you, but they haven't had the same exposure, but they can still earn a good living doing the comedy clubs. And that's why I think the British system... Is the best. It's it's more fair to the yeah. comics, certainly. Yeah. You know, is it, do you think it's also more fair to the audience because it's actually a way of it's kind of. I, I wonder if it's a way of nurturing talent. That I, if you think of people like kind of the weirder acts like Tony Law and Phil yeah. Kay and people like that, it's interesting to see whether they could work in America because actually, unless they've got the profile. Do you know what I mean? I, I feel like the, the UK circuit, the way we work, can kind of help people exactly. get, develop. Exactly. Yeah. Because Tony, Law, you can take, you can take Tony Law was not that weird when I first met him many years ago. Oh, well, I know. He was yeah, just yeah. a regular stand-up guy. Sure. And he's gone a completely different route. And you can do that. He's been free to do that because yeah. the circuit has enabled him. In exactly. Way, yeah. And, and that's, that's the great thing. I mean, the UK scene is changing now because you've got all these comedians selling out massive arenas and stuff. And people have less money. So now they're like, eh. Do I want to spend 30 quid to go and see a bunch of comedians I've never heard of? Or should I go and watch that bloke off the telly? And now people are starting to move towards the Michael McIntyres and the Mickey Flanagan. Which presumably is happening at the right time for you because you aspire to be one of those arena acts. Arenas, I like the idea of it just for the money and the prestige. But no, I don't actually enjoy the arena gigs. I like theatres. I would rather do a theatre for four nights than one massive arena. But what I want is those numbers of people yes. that are willing to pay and come and see me. But I I don't think arenas and stand-up comedy work that well together. Okay. I don't think they're that great. But it's great to be able to do. I did once just to go, I have done, I yeah, can. Yeah, yeah, sure. But it's, that is just, just a money earner, that is. It's not, sure. it's not fun for the people on, in row 750. How big is uh, Brixton? You're doing Brixton Academy. I'm doing Brixton Academy. That's here. a that's a two two thousand, two just over two thousand. I've yeah. only ever seen bands in Brixton Academy. I know. I can't, I've only ever stood there. Do you know what I mean, I've never yeah. been when it's been it's seated. Be yeah. seated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I was like, well, if Jimmy Carr could do it, I'm doing it. Let's have it. Come on, if Jim Jeffries could do it. I'm as funny as those guys. Well, let's have it. Yeah. As I said, I'm competitive. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. So when you're when you started in America. So how long have you been gigging in America now? It's 10 years now. I've been, yeah, I, so I got until I was got to in 2007. So I moved okay. out there 2007. And you then, you did Def Jam in 2008? Yes, I did in 2008. So get, I mean, you were the first British comic. The and, only and, British comic. Have there been many? It. No, there's no, there's no, no one anymore. Nope. And you got a standing ovation. I've seen that clip. And oh, it's yeah, a I did. funny clip. Do you know what? The only clip of it that I could find online, and it might be a legal thing, is I think you put it up there, and it's filmed off the TV. It's yeah, like a no, green I, it wasn't even bar. me. A, is it not you? A fan filmed it. I got you, yeah. And sent it to me, and I was yeah. like, great. And I just it's stuck it It's terrible quality. Oh, it's an quality. amazing gig. Yeah. And you, your stuff about the you know MTV Cribs and like the yeah. fact they've got chandeliers all the rest of it, I just thought it was lovely. What I particularly liked was when you were talking about the hypocrisy of... Um, rappers likening themselves to the mafia and you go, the mafia hate black people. That's yeah. just such a sweet joke. That's great. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And uh, so well, let's let's talk about the... We will talk about the, how you got onto that show in a minute. But yeah. when you were on that show... Yeah. You know, you you must have... I mean, were you freaking out backstage going, I'm going to be the first, you know, maybe only British comic to do it? No. Nope. What are you like pre-gig? Are you in the wings going, I'm going to smash this because I'm great? Basically, that's basically... <laughs> I love it. Remember, when I went to America, I'd already been doing comedy 
11 years, 12 yeah. years when I went to America. Yeah. So I had all that experience. I was already, I'd already done loads of TV in England. Mm-hmm. So to me, Dev Comedy Jam was just another stand-up show. Yeah. Now, I'd already been in America six months. And you at this weren't point. someone that had grown up on Deaf Comedy. You weren't trembling, like you said, like prior no. or what have you. you you'd no. I knew of Deaf Comedy Jam. I'd seen clips of it. Sure. And I was like, oh, yeah, all right. But I'd already been in LA six months, yeah. hitting those clubs hard. I was out every night. So I played the, the urban clubs. I played the mainstream clubs. So mm-hmm. I, I played the black clubs. I went to the most ghetto of ghetto rooms because I was like, I'm not going to be scared of any audience. Same as how I did in England. I'm not going to be scared of any audience out here. Yeah. I'll play the beautiful comedy store on Sunset, but I also go into Inglewood or Compton and I'm playing... You played in Compton? Yeah, I played a club in Compton. And they got, a, a policeman was shot there the day after I played there. But... Because of you. No, no I'm kidding. <laughs> it was that bad. You know? <laughs> but yeah, I said, I'll go and play any club. And so I'd been in on the scene playing with club for six months. And did you have, a, did you have an American agent? Or were you just bringing up point, and booking yourself in? At that point, no. Okay. No. So how did you get the... Who spotted you for Deaf Comedy? Tell you what happened. How did you they talk were, your way into it? They were... No, they were doing a showcase at the Comedy Store on Sunset. And uh, they were doing a showcase and they were looking at all these comedians. And I happened to be there that night just doing a set. And uh, Damon Wayans' son went on and destroyed... It's funny, guy. He's in a lot of films and TV stuff now. Okay. Looks just like his dad. He went on and destroyed. Now, all the other comedians that were there to showcase now for Def Jam, did not want to go on after this dude. Okay. Because they're like, we're showcasing, he's just killed. If we don't take it to that level, we're going to look terrible. We miss our opportunity to get on the show. So none of them wanted to go on after. So the, the, the promoter's like, look, we need someone to go on next. And I was like, well, I'll go on next. Okay. I don't give a shit. <laughs> so they're like, well, all right then. So I went on. Yeah. And I just did my thing. Yeah. And I took it to the next level. So I wasn't even showcasing for the show, but I had yes. to be there and I just did it. And they were like, what is your number? Oh, I was yeah, like, oh, here's my phone number. And then they called me a week later and they said, you know, you know, they were like, oh, yeah, Gina, uh, you'll be glad to know that we've decided yeah, we're going to book you for Deaf Comedy Jam. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's great. That's good. Yeah, great. Thanks for that. How much are you paying me? And that was my attitude. It's just like, <laughs> it's a gig. How much am I getting? Yeah, and they're like, huh? Because they're obviously thinking, this yeah, is the most... Everyone, they, everyone else they make that phone yeah. call to just melts into yeah. the phone. And yeah, and I just right. like, oh, that's great, lovely, okay. great. That's incredible. What's the, what's the money? That's incredible. And did that, did that become something that made a difference then to your bankability? Did that make a difference to, to getting your foot in the door to headline on clubs? The, on the urban gigs, yes. Okay. On the mainstream gigs, no. Okay. It, it was a great little calling card. And it was a great thing. It was. It did me more better in England than it did me in yeah. America. Because everybody was like, "Oh my God, she's got America and she's on Deaf Comedy Jam." Because obviously, it's a hugely like popular and hugely sure, prestigious sure. show to have done. And on the night, there was a lot of comedians who came out and were like, "Who the hell is this English girl?" Yeah. Like I heard Chris Watt was in the crowd. There was loads of people in the crowd. Damon Wayans was there, obviously because he's son as well. But he always they were all there, like going, "Who is?" Because obviously they'd never heard of me. Uh-huh. Americans, they don't know what's going on in the comedy. They don't know there's comedy in England. They don't know this, and they didn't yeah. know there was a black. They didn't know there was a black comedy scene yeah. Yeah. in England. Do you know they, what I mean? So they were they were shocked that I was a British comedian and a black British comedian, yeah. and and I'm coming from a black perspective, but not yes. their black perspective. Totally different voice. Yeah, I like I'm British and I'm black and I'm I've still got that swag is what yeah. they call it as a black comedian, but. 
It's not the same as theirs. Yeah. And so it completely blew their minds. So so you're someone who's got like you, you've almost got like superpowers as a comic. Like you've got we've all got in our toolkit. We've all got particular things we're good at. And I know that you're good at uh, you're good. At, you're really good at finding the simplicity of an idea. You're really good at connecting like a personal attitude to an idea. Right. You're great at act outs. You pound out the. I mean, you've got you've got this kind of. Um, this element to your style, whereby you know, everyone's like uh, everyone knows that like, Chris Rock always does the setup twice. Right. You'll you'll do, you'll do the punchline four times. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You'll go like, we don't think like that. We don't. <laughs> we don't. We don't. And then you tell me over here, we don't. You know, you've got. But it's there's something about that that kind of performance that that is. It, you know, I mean, it's like a natural kind of ability to engage. It's like yeah. oratory. You know what yeah. I mean? As you can yeah. see, you like in yeah. you know, in like the Roman Senate or something, yeah. going, they're taking everyone to war. Right. So you've got all of those things going for you. Plus, on top of that, you've got the additional things of the unique perspective and the Black British perspective exactly. and the rest of it. So, what? Let me just turn that on its head. What do you feel are your weaknesses as a comic? What What do you feel are the things that, like, do you see other comics and go, I wish, I, I wish my I don't know what it was. My imagery was a bit better, or I need to work on this, or I need to work on that. Uh, I like, I watched uh, Greg Proops. Greg Proops does that. We did a show together in Pasadena, California, and I remember thinking, "Oh my God, he's so clever!" Yeah. Like I'm pretty clever. I'm intelligent. I'm smart. But my comedy, th- there are elements of cleverness in it. I'm pretty clever, but I haven't got that. Highbrow. Not that I want to do that. I don't really want to. That's just not me. But you know, I watch a Stuart Lee or a or a Greg Poops, and I'm like, they're so clever. I love the way they. But then I go, well, that's not my style. But I I like that. I do kind yes. of admire that. And okay. plus, I'm not interested in current affairs or politics at all, unless something really affects me on a guttural level, and I don't. On a gut level, then I'll, I'll put it in my act if it really. But I'm not. I, I, I admire those comedians who are really up on current events and politics and can weave that into their material. When when you were and I never saw you on Mock the Week. You did a couple of a couple of episodes of Mock the Week, a couple yeah. of seasons of Mock the yeah. Week. As someone... I did about eight. I did the most. They they kept using me yeah. when they were complaining. Oh, there aren't enough women. Or, or ethnic minorities aware. I hate the word. Oh, ethnic two minority. for one, right? And then okay. they go, "Oh, but Gina's <laughs> been on the show eight times. Gina's been more on as the most used woman on Mock the Week, and they use me as an example." Okay, how did to, that feel? To rebut that argument, that annoys you, obviously, a little bit, yeah. Because I'm like, yeah, but I'm never going to get to host a show like Mock the Week. That you know, I know I'm good and I'm consistently good, and that's why I got a lot of this that TV work. But I don't feel like I've got the same opportunities. Do you know what I mean? Russell Howard can go on and sell stadiums based off his... You know what I mean? They're just not the same opportunities for us, as in black comedians. And whose fault do you think that is? What would you do to change that? What, what needs, which people need to make what decisions to change that? I just think you need more... Uh... Look, I, I'm not even going to say it's racism. I don't say it's racism. I say, basically, the TV industry right now is run by white, middle-class men. So they tend to book people that look and sound like them, who they relate to. And that's what it is. You switch on the TV, that's all you're seeing, really. Uh, so I'm not going to complain. I'm just, I'm just doing what I'm doing. I'm just going to cultivate an audience of people that want to come and see me. And eventually that audience will get so huge that they can't ignore me anymore. You know, And that's what people like Kevin Hart have done. Kevin Hart, they weren't interested in Kevin Hart, but then he's, 
he's cultivated this massive audience and you can't you can't look at that massive audience and not see dollar signs mm-hmm. and that's basically what's happened and he's made he's been able to parlay that into a huge movie career and have you always felt like that have you always like that is a very kind of calmly angry perspective Do you know what yeah, i mean like there's yeah. the problem here's my solution like that that's that's almost like a kind of a that's something like a therapist would tell you or a best friend would say, you yeah. should think about it like this. Yeah, is, I mean... Is, think, have you always felt like that? Or is no, something you've had to put For together? years, I tried to fit into what I thought they wanted. You know, I'd go on, like, you know, i try and tone down my blackness. Not, not that much, but, you know, i try to tone it down a little bit when I did these TV shows. And how, to, how do you mean? What do, what do you mean specifically? I know what you're getting at, but I, I feel like I don't quite understand. Like... Now, my agent would go, you know, just stop talking about this sort of stuff or leave out some of that material that's a little bit too, might be a bit controversial. You know, like, so that's what I would do. So in terms of subject matter. Yeah, yeah, so I try and not be too controversial and try and keep it, oh, look, happy, shiny Gina. Okay. And and then I thought, well, I'm doing this and I'm still not getting the opportunities that I thought I would get. Yeah. And then I'm thinking, well, you know what? I'm just going to be myself. Fuck it. I don't care anymore because you guys don't want me anyway. So I might as well just be what the hell I want to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because I'm a little bit threatening. I don't know what it is. They love people like Andy Osho, for instance. Yes. There's a lot of comparisons between me and her. Okay. I don't see what they are. The only thing is we're both black and female from a Nigerian background. And she is t- like the non-threatening blander version of me, kind of. Okay. Like, I don't dress a certain way. I'm not going to put on a little tight dress and, okay. and, and look all sexy. I'm not doing that because that's not me. You know, I'm not going to conform to what they feel like a woman should look like on TV. Do you, do you think she's kind of letting the side down by dressing like that? Not at all. Or do you not think all. that she's, she can no. dress how she wants? No, not at all. She can dress how she wants. But that is more acceptable to... The, the powers to be than, let's say, someone who looks like me and sounds like me and, you know, is not conforming to that girly yes. thing. You know yes. what I mean? Sure. So as a black woman, you have to be less threatening. And for black guys, you have to be less threatening to them. You have to look as close or sound as close to a middle-class white person as you can to get on. And so that's why Andy gets loads of stuff like that. I'm less... Palatable, I, I suppose the word is. Yes, yes. Well, okay. that's what they think. Sure. But then you come out and see me live and you see the people that come to my shows. Yes. Yeah, then because... that's not the case. But the people booking TV shows are looking at me going, they, they, they use me a lot when I was consistently good and whatever and I'm there. But so I'm this... not going to get the opportunity to host my show or get my own. I'm never going to get that. So that clearly makes you angry, understandably. Does it hurt? Does it hurt? It did back then. Definitely. It definitely hurt me a lot back then because I'd be like, I've worked my ass off. I've done everything right. I'm funny and I'm consistently funny and I come on all your shows and you keep using me again and again and again so I know I'm doing something right. So why am I not getting the opportunities, let's say, a Michael McIntyre or Jimmy Carr or any of those guys are getting? Why am I not getting that? I, I was on the road with McIntyre. We did shows together. And he used to open... I used to be the headliner. He was... And, I, and the thing is, I shouldn't even think like that. 
but I'm an engineer. I come from a background where you, you do certain things, yeah. you get a certain qualification. You're like, this comic's got an asterisk next to it. Yeah. Why isn't he headlining? Yeah, well, why aren't I headlining? Well, yeah. my thing is, I come from a background where right, I go, right, I work this hard, I do it this well, I get the promotion. Yes. I get the qual- qualification, which means I get to go to this pay grade. Mm-hmm. So that's... And showbiz isn't like that. So I've tried... Over the years, I've let that go. Whereas years ago, I'd be like, I don't understand it. I'm as good as this person. Why am I not? But now I've just gone, look, my face doesn't fit. I don't have the look or the sound or whatever. I'm just going to do my thing. And whoever likes what I do can come to me. And now we're in an age where we don't have to rely on TV. Fuck the TV people. I could get my phone and make my own TV show with a bloody Android phone or whatever, or with an iPhone. I can put my own content on TV. I don't need these people now to validate Mm. me. And that's the joy of what I do now. Like, I don't allow that fucking cock from the chortle into any of my shows. Okay. Is that now, that's, that's a, a very I don't uh, need impassioned reaction about reviews. How, are you, do you feel like that about all reviewers? Uh, most reviewers, yes. I don't need them to validate. But him in particular, he's the worst, in my opinion, because I feel like he has a bias as to who he likes, which is fine. He's a human being. Whatever. But then he's biased against me. He's, he's review shows that I've been on. Like, I remember doing a Montreal showcase at the Comedy Store years ago. And everybody else didn't do brilliantly. I killed that show. In fact, I was the only person on that showcase who got booked for Montreal that year. Okay. But you looking at the review of the show, you wouldn't believe that. Yes. Everybody else was great. But Gina, oh, all she does is talk about being black, which is utter bullshit. So things like that irritate me. Like, whereas white comedians can talk about where they're from, you know. Pete K could be as normal as he want. The other Scottish dude, Frankie Barnett, could be as Scottish as they want. They can talk about their, their perspective as much as they want. But I mention the fact that I'm black or that I'm Nigerian. Oh, my God, all she talks about is being black. They, they lock onto that, and that kind of thing irritates me. That's what the total guy, Steve fucking Bennett, that's what he does a lot of. Which, and then the worst thing about it, he'll, he doesn't like my comedy, but then he'll praise somebody who's blatantly been influenced and I've got my two, my four fingers back. Because <laughs> a couple of these, because a couple of these comedians have been influenced, have actually done my jokes, yeah, and they've right. got better reviews on Chortle for doing my jokes than me who originated it. So yeah. stuff like that irritates me. And then he, I, I think it's interesting. There's there's a there's a lot of comics of your. I don't want to make it sound too long ago, but your era. You know, yeah. like like um, I know that uh, Terry Alderton oh, had yeah. huge beef with with the reviews oh, yeah. on that website. Um, and I think it was a similar accusation almost being levelled at a lot of comics, a lot of kind of jongler's headliners, if you like, that the, the comedy, I suppose, that the comedy was kind of route one, that it was, it was obvious observations. I think that's a particular hang-up of his. You know, uh, that it's, a... it's reductive somehow. No, it's, that's snobbery. I do the same stuff that I did at Jonglers that I do on my tours. Do you know what I mean? What's funny is funny. You can't choose what kind of comedy, you know... There's room for every type of comedy. There's the highbrow, clever Stuart Lees and Greg Proops's. There's the, what's his name, the really physical... Lee Evans. Lee Evans. Yeah. And then there's me, who's somewhere in the middle, where some of my stuff is clever, some of it ain't. Whatever, as long as it's funny. There's room for all of that type. So it's not about reductive. 
you know, the same audience that goes to Jonglers may go to see Michael McIntyre, may see go and see Stuart Lee. You don't know who's in those crowds. Mm. It's not a particular type of person who goes to a particular... Oh, I'm, oh, I see myself as working class and, and dumb. So I'm, gonna go, I'm not going to go to the comedy store. I'm going to go to Jonglers. That's not true. Mm. You get the same kind of people at the store sometimes on a late night on a Saturday. So that, is, that, that argument is redundant to me. It's not about reducting. It's just about what is funny in front of that crowd at that time and it's what you want to do. And do you feel validated now, now that you've gone to the States, now that you're doing, you're doing Brixton Academy to a couple of thousand people, do you feel like you, like, ha, I was right? No, I've never, you know what, I've always felt that my comedy is my comedy. I just, I don't give a shit what anybody thinks of my comedy because I know that I'm funny and I know that there's people all over the world. I travel the world doing this. Mm. I just don't like that people who, like, I've been to BBC for meetings and stuff, and I've seen them using chortle as some kind of thesaurus of comedy. That annoys me, because it's just one bloke's opinion. And he's wrong. He once accused me of stealing a joke. But because this guy does not like my comedy and couldn't... The opportunity came to diss me, he didn't check his facts before he put it up on the website. And it's stuff like that. I mean, he he had to take it down in 24 hours, because I... I sent. I got my agent to send him a DVD of me doing that joke mm-hmm. six years before. So I'm like, he had to take it down and put some backhanded bullshit apology on his website. But it's stuff like that that annoys me because I'm like, you're just a human being. You have an opinion. And I don't want your opinion now being used... As fact. As fact. Yeah. You know? And that's why I don't like the guy. And uh, that's why I don't let him in my shows. I don't need you to have my shows. My shit's sold out. I don't need you. I don't need you to tell me whether my show is good or not. My shit sells out with or without you. So you want to come to my show, fucking get your 20 quid out, mate. <laughs> good for you. Good for you. <laughs> I thought it was very funny. Sorry, I might cut my little snickering laugh at the end of that because I sound like a chump. But that's just such a lovely, like, bang, and that's that. Like, it drops mic, moonwalks off stage. <laughs> Uh, do you find that in uh, in America as a do you still feel like an outsider or have you been there long enough now that you are sort of conversant with what Americans think and feel about stuff no I still feel like an outsider I don't understand their sports I never will Uh, so like a lot of comedians will go on and talk about the football and whatever and I just don't get it and I'm not going to try and learn it because as far as I'm concerned I'm British and I don't want to I'm not trying to bring them a British version of what they got already so I'm coming out of here going, this is me. I don't, I don't understand your sports. I don't understand half your politics. I think your healthcare system is bullshit, and I'm going to tell you that. So I come from that, but I do it in a way that I'm not preaching. I'm mm-hmm. doing it from a point almost of naivety. Well, yes. I'll say stuff to them that another American comic might not get away with. Yeah. Like, you know, I'll just turn around and go, you guys are some fat fuckers. But I don't say it that way. Yeah. But I'll go, oh, wow, in America... When you guys get fat, you get really fucking fat. But I do it in a way that's like, oh, they're like, oh, yeah, we, we do, so, you're right. It's, it's almost like you as an outsider, yeah. because you will always be an outsider in America yeah. as, a, as a, a, a black woman with a British accent. That yes. is, that, that is going to be a long time before that becomes normal. Exactly. So you get to use that. That kind of gives you license to play that kind of role. Yes. So here's my question then. Do you... Does that license, do you need to be careful about, for example, I noticed there was on your American special, there was one or one of them, 
there was a joke about we don't get Mexican people in the UK, we don't get Hispanic people, maybe they can't swim that far. Yeah. Like, given that that's kind of like a stereotypical yes. or a use of stereotypes, yes. do you need to tread carefully when you do stuff like that? Do you feel like I'm contributing to the stereotype? No. Uh, this is how I test if my jokes are racist. If I can do that joke in front of an audience full of the people that I'm talking about and they laugh and they get it, then I can do that joke anywhere. And this is how I, I will do that joke, and I have done that joke, in a room full of Mexicans, in a room full of Puerto Ricans. And they go, oh, you bad, oh, you... Yeah, yeah, But yeah. they laugh, because they know it's not coming from a place of hate. Sure. And, they, and, if, and the fact that I've got the balls to stand up and do that joke in front of them, they'll go... Yeah. Do you think that is? Do you think though that that's because of that license of you being a kind of a, a perpetual outsider? Do you think I could do that joke in the states? With your accent, you might get away with it. If you oh, do. because I'd be because I'd be you're British enough to, I could play that. If you're just a white American yeah. redneck dude and you're doing that joke, you're better doing it. You better be. You better have a fantastic point at the end of it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, I always test jokes in front of a, if I'm talking about certain people. I will do that joke in, in front of those people. Mm. And if, I, if, you, if you can't do that joke in front of the people you're talking about, then you know deep in your heart that shit is racist. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these comedians that feel they're edgy now, like, there's a, you know, oh, yeah, I do race stuff. Yeah, well, go in a black room in front of 500 black people and do that joke. And if you get out of there alive, then your shit is not racist. Yeah. If you can't do that, if you can't do it, yeah. then you know your shit is racist. You know what I mean? Because there's these comedians that are like, yeah, we're edgy, man. And they, yeah, I say nigger. I'm like, yeah? Go to Compton and say nigger. We'll see if you get out of there. And then if you can, then I'll say, right, fair play. Carry on doing your nigger jokes. But if you can't, then you're a racist. Yeah, you could do it in front of a bunch of white people who go, oh, my God, this, it's so, oh, my God, it's just so, so edgy. It's not edgy. It's not. You know? So when you, um, you I think so, that's, a great, that's a great answer. That's a really comprehensive answer. I noticed on your, your special when you talk about there's bits of America I won't go to. Yeah. So I won't go to Alabama. I won't go to, you know, yeah. Mississippi or stuff like that. Is, that. is that a real thing? Is that a, is that a joke about the, the stereotypes of racism in the US? Or oh. are there actually places where you go, I'm going to stick to cities? Oh, hell, yeah. There's places I would not go to. I don't want to go to rural Alabama and do shows. Uh, white, some white comics can go there and do it and certain black comics who play the oh my god I'm just a dancing but I can't do that okay. so you do but you do so you see American black comics doing that kind there of are, there uh, are I mean not so much now but yeah okay. there are some comedians who there used to be some here that used to do that but um, yeah there's certain parts of America that I am not rushing to go and play mm-hmm. I mean there's certain black audiences in America that I don't want to play I've done Atlanta I don't like Atlanta What's, what's the problem with Atlanta? The, the audience out there... Look, have you ever heard the hip-hop that's coming out from Atlanta? I couldn't name any specific right, Atlanta. Well, who, who, very, are the, who are the hip-hop guys from Atlanta? It's all very ghetto, and, and so that kind of crowd I'm not into at all. I don't want to... I don't want to... I can play those crowds, and I have. I did uh, a show called Sha- Shaq's All-Stars, which is Shaquille O'Neal. Sha- yes, I saw it, yeah. And, uh, and that... He, he attracts a very base ghetto black audience okay. and that is not my crowd okay not you, my crowd you did audience. the show though I you... did the show I did well but I split the room really yeah, did I split you? The room. okay I saw a tiny clip of yeah. it online and like the advert clip of it and oh, yeah, I split um... the room half the crowd are like oh my god this is so awesome 
And then half the crowd are like, this bitch has not said nigga or motherfucker once. What the fuck is this shit? Because they're used to that nigga, bitch, nigga, motherfucker. They're used to that whole, you know, you got that kind of rap style comedy, yes. which is like, you know, when a bitch is sucking my dick, that kind of stuff is what they're used to. And I don't do that. And I'm not going to lower myself to do that. That's not my style of comedy. I'm not going to do it. And so, yeah, when I did that crowd, there's 5,000 people, 2,500 of them were like, oh, my God, that's great. And then the other half are looking at me like, she ain't saying nigga, she ain't cussing, she ain't, she ain't talk about her pussy. What is this shit? I think all of us, a lot of us, to some extent, feel my face doesn't fit. There's some reason I'm just getting ignored. You know, I, I know two or three different white male comics who said, oh, you know, I just feel like the invisible man of comedy. Yeah, but for you guys, it's different in that because there's so many of you. They've got so much more to choose from. You've got so many white, middle-class males doing comedy. They're, they've got... The pick. So it's not that you're being ignored. It's just that there's just so many of you, mm-hmm. and and that's a whole a whole different thing. But if you get picked, yeah. But if you get picked, your face you does fit. Picked, whereas your is done. Yeah. But we black people, black comedians, we have hardly any chance of being picked because our faces will never fit. Do you know what I mean? And when we do, they pick <laughs> people that fit. What you know what I mean? What do you mean? They look for non-threatening when they pick black people to go on TV. It's non-threatening black people. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I totally agree. Whose comedy, whose comedy is, it fit. You know, like I already mentioned, Dandy. I, I mention it again. Her stuff is oh, dating. I date a lot, and I go out with guys, and I'm so nice, and I've had boyfriends and stuff, and they love that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's and that's, and I, I guess you don't mean that as a criticism of her, because no. she can talk about what she wants. She but you does mean what she it's does. It's about the, the filter which allows that through. You've got a, a vast gamut of white comedians who can talk about what they want. You've got Frankie Boyle, who's a, a, offensive as shit. Jimmy Carr, who's mm. offensive. Then you've got buffoonery at the other end and everything in the middle. You can have that. You've got that freedom yeah. as a white comedian. Black comedians, we can't be super edgy. You look, I'm, I'm trying to think how many black comedians are on TV right now. Do you think of, I can't think of any. Well, Romesh, Rangan Nathan, he's on the way up. He's uh, uh, Sri Lankan origin, I think. He's, yeah. Yeah. They like the Indian kind of thing. it. Stephen K. Amos. The Indian Asian thing they love. <laughs> is Stephen K. Amos is still a KZ on TV still? Now, th- let's look at Stephen K. Amos. You're going to email me and say you can't use any of this. Oh, well. <laughs> okay, right. go on. So Stephen K. Amos, they like him. They, they, they used, they gave, he, he, was a, he was on the scene a long, long time before he got his break. Yes, he was, yeah, yeah. And then he did one show, Yeah. didn't quite work out, and they're like, oh, shit, that black guy, well, that didn't work out. And that's how they use it to judge all black comedians. Yeah, right. They don't go, okay. oh, this white guy showed it work out. Ah. Uh, Oh, that's it. We can't use any more white guys. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to a black comedian, if a black comedian doesn't, if their show doesn't go boom straight away, we're all tarnished with the same brush. It's like, oh, that. See, told you, black guys don't fit in middle America. Oh dear. Yeah. And and Stephen K is perfect. He's very middle class, quite well spoken, not too offensive, gay, f- ticks all the boxes. But yet, they still treated him like shit. When his one show didn't work out, it's like, oh, done. 
you said America there. You said in Middle America, and I know we're talking about the UK, but my, my last did I say question. America, you, did, you did say America. I was sorry, I meant Middle England. Middle England, yeah. Yeah. But so my my last question then really is is that not a problem at all in America because uh, there's so many black comics, or are there still elements no. of that? I, I'm not saying that England is more racist. America's just as racist. Just as. Except that you've just got a much more massive audience. And at the end of the day, money talks. Money talks. Like in England, I could sell out all these massive theatres, which is what I'm doing. I'm, you know, when I shot my first special in 2008, that was at Hackney Empire, sold out for three nights. You're talking 1,400, 1,500 people for Every night, three nights. So I've been selling out these theatres for a long time and generating decent amounts of money. But in England, they still don't give a shit. Eh. In America now, you're selling out theatres like that. They're looking, they're like, okay, this guy, this girl, she makes money. We need to work with this person. Mm -hmm. And that's how it is. So money talks more in America. You know, the kings of comedy were selling out massive stadiums to 99% black audience. And that's the thing. They've got a much bigger black audience that they can, they can... You know, black comedians can make money in America just doing black crowds and be millionaires off, off, off it. And that's the, where the difference is. And that, but then what happens, mainstream then comes to you. They're like, these guys are selling stadiums out. We want a piece of that. And that's where that came from, the kings of comedy, which then trickled down to people like Cat Williams and Kevin Hart. Mm. And, that's, and that's the difference. But they're, they're, there's no difference. America's just as racist. They're, they're becoming just as ageist, whereas now comedy, which was before the bastion of the misfits. You know what I mean? It was the last bastion of the misfit. Comedy was for misfits, people like me, who were not particularly popular, not particularly good-looking, whatever. But that was our thing. This is how we, where we came into our own. But now comedy's becoming fucking all these good-looking young boys in skinny jeans and their, their primped hair talking about fuck all. Do you know what I mean? That's not what comedy was about. Fat old people were able to do comedy in the old days. Ugly people. You know, and that's, that was the joy of doing comedy. But now it's moved. It's moving a different way. It's, like, it's becoming, for as long as I've been doing it, it's becoming more and more like pop music. Yeah. Now, and it's the same thing's happening in America. It's pretty young people, hot chicks. Comedy Central, you turn on Comedy Central, unless you're hugely famous, there is no comedian over 38 on Comedy Central unless they're Louis C.K. or someone like that. Mm. They only book young, hot, or geeky, alternative, and that's the thing now. So there's not that much... So, there's, um, not, it, there's not richness no, to, to what's no available. To yeah. No, there's no richness to it. So America's not any different. The only difference is yeah, they've got a glass ceiling for black comics in America, but the only thing is the glass ceiling in America is a lot fucking higher. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I could hit that glass ceiling in America and I'll be bitching about racism in America, but I'll be counting my money and still <laughs> driving a Lamborghini at the same time. So I want to hit that glass ceiling. And that's why I'm over there. So the final question is this. Other than the, your analytical nature, the hard work, the talent, all of those things, what is, what is the one thing that you would tell? But other than work hard, everyone says work hard, everyone says gig. What's the one thing that you'd want to pass on to, to younger comics? is uh, don't try and be like anybody else. Just just do what you want to do, and eventually they'll come to you. Do you know what I mean? Don't try and be like everybody else. There's too many of everybody else out there. Be original. Try and be original. Be true to yourself. That's all I can say, really. I mean, I say that. <laughs> but then I turn on the TV and I go, well, that's, uh, 
there's, there's seven guys that all sound the same to me, so they're obviously not listening, and they're obviously being quite successful off it. Or maybe they're all just being themselves, and that's what the TV wants at the time. They go, yeah, yeah. Or either that, or they're going, oh, Russell Brand is very popular. We want our Russell Brand, mm-hmm. and that's basically what's happening because these TV execs haven't got an original fucking thought in their brains. They're all very risk averse, and they also they all basically want what is already successful. And that's why you're seeing all these identical comedians who all look and sound the same. Do you know what I mean? And that's what's happening. So, yeah, I say be original. Eventually, it will work. Well, we'll see. Come back and do this podcast for me in another 10 years. <laughs> I will. Uh, if I'm still moaning, then don't listen to a fucking word I've said. It's all rubbish. Just do, copy everybody else. Do the same jokes that everybody else is doing. And hopefully you'll be the next Michael McIntyre. Now, I know people who are going to be listening to this and going, oh, she's got a chip on her shoulder. I always get that one. Mm-hmm. She's got a chip on her shoulder. Maybe she's just not funny, and that's why she's, she's not as successful as she thinks she is. And I'm like, it's not just about me. It's about the way black comedians are perceived anyway. You feel like you have to... Like, I went for meetings. This is an actual God's honest truth. I went for a meeting, Channel 4, many years ago. And this is the actual words that come out of this person's mouth. She was like, yeah, uh, we've already, yeah, we've already got a black comedian on the show, on this channel who's got their own show. And at the time it was Richard Blackwood. Yeah, we've got Richard Blackwood. Uh, yeah, we can't, you know. And they actually said that to me, to my Jesus face. Christ. We've so there's a quota. Yeah. 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 Like, and so the, the, when Jocelyn G from Free on Blondes, when she got her TV show, I knew that was it. I was done. Because I'm like, she's black and female and Nigerian. It's over. Hopefully her show will become hugely successful. If it becomes hugely successful, maybe the other channels will go, we want our female Nigerian, and then I might get a chance that way. But if it didn't, and so that was the end of that. And that was the end of that. And that's how they do it with black comedians. One black comedian gets through, and if they don't become a star overnight or blow it out of the water... All the other black comedians are fucked. And it doesn't happen that way. And you can, people can say, oh, you're going to chip on the shoulder. Oh, that's not what it's about. You just turn on the TV and see, you know? And, t- and turn on the TV and see the kind of black comedians they like to let through. Very non-threatening. Mm-hmm. The Doc Browns and people like that, who are very good. Mm-hmm. I've got nothing against the dude. The guy's super talented and I love what he does. And as I said, there's, a, there's room for all types of comedy. But he's a non-threatening black guy. They love that shit. Someone like me who's outspoken, I'm not going to get my own show. I get to come on shows like Mock the Week and do my little thing. But I haven't done Mock the Week for years. You know? I, I just felt like it's... I, I enjoyed doing it when I did it. But, you know, I'm like, well, where does this go? Am I, am I going to get... I'm always the bridesmaid. I'm like, where, is this not going anywhere? I'm just going to be used as the face, the black female face, and whenever they get criticism for not using that... Oh, but they can wheel you out and go... They'll wheel me out, but we've got Gina. And that's what was basically happening. I'm like, yeah, but what happens after that? Why am I not getting to host a show? Why am I got a good news week type show? Why, you know what I mean? Why haven't I got shit like that? Why well, has it any of us? But anyway... 
Thanks for looking up. Maybe next week a black comedian is going to get their own show and my whole argument will be negated. I hope so. <laughs> I, bet you, I bet you it's going to be a very non-threatening black guy. I'll tell you that. So thank you to Gina. Uh, she plays the Brixton Academy this Saturday, so grab your tickets online for that. Um, and then uh, she's off back uh, touring. She's in Canada. Uh, I'm hopefully going to be seeing her at the Montreal Comedy Festival in July, where I will try my absolute hardest to get her in a room with Russell Peters. Des Bishop next week from the Live Soho Show. You can still buy tickets online now uh, for Nina Conti on the 5th of May, live at Soho Theatre. And so it's Des Bishop's released next week. The following week will be Nick Mohammed. I'm sitting on that one. It's so good. Can't wait to bring you that conversation with Nick. This episode, The Podmin, was by Olivia Phipps and it was co-produced by Nathan Wood. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Uh, email me info at comedianscomedian.com or tweet at comcompod and I'll speak to you soon. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you, you were different. Like you were real different. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>